You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I don't think half of you are paying attention. Jim, I see you in the back. Sit down. How you doing, Revolution Church? All right, I'll, I'll take it. Now, Brandon forgot one announcement because I didn't tell him because uh, I'm really forgetful. Uh, our boy Clifton Ross, you can see him over there with the backwards hat and glasses, he usually plays bass for us uh, during the college year. Um, he has organized a uh, benefit show, a uh, concert, some, some heavier music, um, and it is actually going to be July 29th, that's this Friday, at 8 p.m. in the Sodexo Ballroom at Shawnee State University. And what they're doing, they're doing this benefit show. Um, he, he called it Defend Dallas. And, and what it is is they're taking money, if I understood him right, they're taking money, uh, anything that they raise, and they're giving it to uh, families of the, vic- like the victims who were shot in Dallas, the police officers, um, back a few weeks ago. So that'd be something great if you have time to go out to that uh, this Friday, 8 p.m., Sodexo Ballroom at Shawnee. So, getting that out of the way, I told you I'd do it for you, brother, I got you. He's like, Dave, they didn't announce it, man, what are you going to do? I was like, chill it out, brother, I got you. Um, So, uh, we're going to continue on this evening uh, through the book of Acts. We've been in there since the beginning uh, of the summer, it's been an awesome time. Uh, In the name of this sermon series, uh, if you're new, I see a couple of people maybe, uh, it's called The People of God, and what we're doing is we're looking at how the early church thought and lived, Um, we're trying to imitate their godly examples. I know I say the same thing at the start of every sermon so far this summer, uh, and it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter about that. Anyway, it's just something that I thought was funny. But we're trying to imitate the godly examples of the early church in the book of Acts. And tonight what we're going to do um, is we're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul and something that happens to him in a group of missionaries um, in Acts chapter 16. Um, but in doing that, we're really going to consider the true nature of unbelievers. Um, the true nature of, of anyone who doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who's unconverted, anyone who's not been born again of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at the hostility and the enmity and hatred that the unbelieving world has towards God and His people. And then we're going to look at how God's people respond to such a group. Right? So we're going to talk about just how awful um, that the heart of the unbelieving world is and how we're supposed to respond um, so as we do this, I would ask you that you, you please don't shut me out um, because I'm going to make very general, broad brush strokes about people who aren't Christians. And I know what everyone's going to say, well, you know, uh, my aunt isn't really like that and she's not a Christian or my friend isn't really like that um, and they're not a Christian. Um, but as I'm making these general statements about every single believer, I want you to know that they are biblical. And we're going to be looking at the Bible and God's word is inerrant. So we may say, you know, well, based off what I see in my family member's life, that they're not really hostile against God, um, I, would show you, I, I, would, I would beg you to consider you don't know their heart. Um, and the Lord does. And the heart of the unconverted is wicked continuously. And the heart of the, those who have been converted um, by the Holy Spirit is still wickedness a lot of the time, but now we just fight against it. So just think about that. And at the same time, um, don't become arrogant towards the unbelievers that we're going to be talking about because every believer was once part of that group. Um, So just a couple of things to bear in mind. So if you know anything hardly about Jesus' teaching, then you know that he says to love your enemies. 
right? So we're to love and pray for and do good for those who would mistreat us and count us as enemies, right? I'm again, referring to the unbelieving world. But, here's a fun question, should we actually view those people as our enemies? Like those people in and of themselves, are they our enemies, right? Is the Christian's fight actually against other human beings? That's the question that we're going to consider by the end of this whole thing, and I hope, hope we can answer it. So, who is our tr- true enemy, and how are we to fight? And I hope that by the end of this, we can have a good godly view of those who would oppose the faith, or oppose us personally, like the ones who cling to that faith, that we can have a good view of them, so that we would respond in a way that honors God and points the world to Jesus. That's the only hope that anyone has. It's the only hope that, that, that we have. Um, So without any more by way of uh, introduction, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. Um, If you're new, you can take one of those blue Bibles out the back of those pews. That's our gift to you. Um, If there isn't one in front of you right now, just let me know. We need to re-up on those Bibles, and I'll I'll get you a hold of one. Um, But yeah, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. It's going to be here on the projector. Verse 16. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. And this went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Let's pray real quick. Um, Father, Uh, Please pour out your Holy Spirit um, in in a way that is not normal. I know your Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of every believer. But God, I pray that you would cause your Holy Spirit to work in us in in such a way that we would be attentive. um, And that our hearts would be softened to the word. And that you would convict us graciously because it is an act of grace that you would point our sin out to us. And that you would cause us to learn something about you and about ourselves. All to your glory and all for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so in this passage, we see, uh, whenever it said we were going to a place of prayer, this is kind of cool. Uh, it's one of those few spots in, in the book of Acts that we actually see. Luke begins to take on, um, like Luke takes on a role. Like He's no longer writing about things that he heard or things that he observed, but Luke is actually here. And if you were to read the whole of chapter 16, and you should, I recommend you guys do that. Read Acts 16 this week. Um, You see Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke uh, are headed to pray. And they're actually headed down by a riverbank. They had just been to this woman's Lydia's house where she converted, and she's a rich lady, and they're staying there. And instead of going to a synagogue, they're actually going down to a river to pray. Um, There might be an old hymn, or maybe it's a country song. I get them confused. I'm not going down to the river to pray. It's been stuck in my head all week. I got the chorus stuck in here. It might be Little Big Town. I don't know. Allison Krauss. She was a saint, wasn't she? Like, I don't know if she's a Christian, but her voice was angelic. Um, my wife hates on me all the time because I like low-key, like country music a little bit, so you take it for what it is. Um, but we see Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke headed to pray down by the river. Um, and on the way, they meet a demon-possessed girl. No big deal, right? Just like... Is there it is, Luke just puts it in there. Yeah, and there was a possessed girl, by the way. Like, that's just par for the course for them. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and this possessed girl, the English Standard Version says, um, has a spirit of divination. Um, 
And divination just means secret knowledge, right? So this demon's giving her um, information about the people that she's talking to that she ought not know, but that the demon knows. It's not that she can actually tell anyone's fortune. It's not that she actually can tell what the future is going to hold for anybody because that's something reserved only for God. He's the only one who's uh, omniscient. But the ESV says a spirit of divination. And what I thought was funny is I looked at the Greek on it, and it literally says she has a python spirit, right? Like Hulk Hogan, right? Like python, yeah, right? So this girl has a python spirit in her is what the Greek says. Uh, Now, we're going to talk about that just here for a second. Uh, Python. Why a python spirit? This is really interesting. Anyone like mythology, like Greek and Roman mythology and all that stuff? Yeah, I'm a nerd. I love that stuff. Um, Python in Greek mythology... um, it is uh, not a god, but this big snake, right? It's why we have pythons, right? It's spelled the exact same. Um, but in Greek mythology, Python was uh, a snake who existed. And uh, what he did was he guarded the oracle of Delphi, right? And the oracle is just this, this woman who in Greek mythology was said to know the future. And she was given these prophecies by uh, a Greek god named Apollo. And, uh, and Python guarded her at the place where she, she did all this stuff. Um, now, Apollo, this Greek god who's associated with prophecy, what he does is he has a beef with Python over something. I'll spare you the details. And, uh, and he kills it, right? He kills this big old snake, and he took Delphi over. Now, side note, Delphi is a real place in Greece, right? It's an actual place. There, there are ruins there you can go and visit today. And in real life back then, uh, whenever these myths were thought to be true, uh, there was a temple to Apollo, this false god, in Delphi. And its priestess there was called the Pythian, right? And was said to receive her false prophecies from Apollo. And other low-level worshipers, right? It was always women. Low-level worshipers who received prophecies from Apollo uh, were called Pythonesses, right? So I thought that was, that was interesting. Whoa, I don't know what just happened. It got loud. Um, so they were called Pythonesses. So whenever the actual Greek says that she has the spirit of a python, uh, that means that this slave girl here is an avid worshiper of Apollo, right? She is knee-deep in paganism. And now she has become possessed by a real demon. Worshiping, while she's worshiping a false god, she becomes possessed by an actual demon, and, as, and that comes as a result of her being so influenced by her false pagan religion. And just a sidebar here, all false religions are of Satan. Every religion except for Christianity, and there are actually some preachers and theologians um, who I would agree with, believe that there is a demon behind every false god. Why is that? God's all about his own glory. If Satan or other demons can detract away from the worship of God by causing someone to worship them, that's what they're out for, right? They hate God. They hate his glory. They don't want people to know him. So all false religions are of Satan. That's Islam. That's uh, Judaism. Since they reject Jesus Christ, that's, that's Hinduism, everything. And I, I think there is a demon behind every false god. I think that makes sense. Um, but I digress. But what I really wanted to do, the reason why we talked about all that uh, Python stuff, uh, was I wanted to draw attention to this girl's religion and her practices and the fact that she is just very devoted to this false god Apollo to show you this. This possessed girl is not innocent. Right? She's not just this innocent little slave girl who's being you know, picked on by the devil. Right? And the reason why I wanted to, to just flesh that out for a second is Anyone like horror movies? Right, like for me, like the more like weird and creepy they are and dealing with, dealing with like spiritual stuff, although highly unbiblical, right? I think that they're interesting. And I think that sometimes movies uh, have influenced the church uh, so much that we would be so stupid 
uh, to think that people who are possessed in the Bible are just good people, maybe even Christians, right? Because it's like every other Catholic gets possessed in a horror film. Uh, but like they, maybe they're Christians um, who are just being picked on by the devil, right? And they didn't do anything. They're totally innocent. Um, they may even love the Lord, and that's just false, right? Um, we're not doing a whole sermon on, on demons or anything like that, but Christians, I don't believe, biblically can be possessed. Because Jesus says, how are you going to go into a house and take everything in there unless you bind first the strong man, right? And we have the Holy Spirit living in us, so a demonic spirit can't do that because the Holy Spirit's infinitely more powerful. But anyway, this slave girl is not innocent. She is an unconverted pagan. She is an idolater. And now she is reaping the fruit of her idolatry, right? So this girl is now very physically being driven, spoken through, and utterly controlled by the power of Satan. That's what it means to be possessed. So not only is this girl a slave girl in a worldly sense, but she is also a slave to sin. She's under the control of Satan. She does not know Christ, and she is possessed by a demon. But here's the thing, this, and this is, a, this is like the first major point. This state of slavery to sin that this slave girl is under is not just because she's possessed. That's not why I'm saying that she's a slave to sin and a slave to Satan. Slavery to sin is actually the truth of all unbelievers. Everyone. Everyone who doesn't know Christ is a slave to their sin. Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this evening. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Right, so all unconverted, all those who do not know Christ are slaves to sin. They have no desire to do what is good in God's eyes. They always do what is right to them. And in our unconverted state, we never want to do the things of God. We do not desire to follow God at all. So they're, always, they're a slave to their own will, you could say. Because man, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit's will, is always to sin. Right? So, so the unconverted, and I'll say this too, they may do good in our eyes. right? Like they may um, feed a homeless person, or they may be kind to somebody. But the Bible says whatever is not done in faith is sin. Because it's not done to the glory of God. Right? So unbelievers, even if they're trying to do something altruistic, it, it's still sin because it's not done to the glory of God. And that would be something for us to keep in mind, too. Why do we do the things we do? Is it for God's glory? But they're, they're quite literally slaves to their own will. They're slaves to sin. But not only that, Ephesians 2.2 tells us something else. Paul writes this. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He, the devil, is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Right? So not only are unbelievers slaves to their own desires and their own will, which is to sin continually, but they're actually following Satan. Right? Paul says they are obeying the devil. So Satan is actually, and, and this was just a weird thought for me, um, I knew it, but I hadn't really ever dwelled on it, that Satan is actually at work in the hearts of unbelievers. What is he doing? He's pushing them deeper into godlessness. He's pushing them deeper into unbelief. Right? The Bible says this. The Bible says that we naturally, because we're born sinners, are naturally spiritually blind and deaf. But then the Bible also tells us that Satan is at work blinding the blind. 
that he puts a veil and like blindfolds those who are already spiritually blind, that he takes, tries to attempt to take the gospel away from those who already by their own stony hearts can't receive it, that he's covering the ears of the deaf. Right, again, these are all spiritually speaking. So they're a slave to sin, and they're also obeying Satan. They're being blinded by Satan. But we'll, we'll add another one to that. Jesus Christ in John 3, 18-21 says this, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him, referring to Himself. But anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. So unbelievers are not innocent victims of sin and Satan. Jesus Christ himself, you can't argue with him. Right? You maybe would want to try to argue with Paul, which would still be foolish. But you can't argue with Christ at all. He says unbelievers love the darkness. They hate what is of God. Right? So these men and women around us that don't know Jesus, not only are they slaves to their own will, which is to sin continually, not only are they slaves to the power of Satan working in their heart, causing them even more godlessness and blindness and spiritual deafness, they're still responsible. They're still responsible for that. It's not poor, innocent human beings who are being worked over by sin and Satan. Jesus says they love it. They love the darkness. They hate the light. So they may be slaves, but they're still responsible. They do not want set free. We were actually talking in small group today. If God would have taken a poll throughout humanity before he sent Christ and said, would you like me to send my son to save you? It would have been a fat zero all around. No, we do not because in our unconverted state, we love our sin and do not want exposed. But all of those truths about slavery, about loving sin, about hating God, hating the light, hating the things of God, all of those things are true about every single unbeliever that you have ever met in your life. And also, and I know a lot of Christians that don't like this, this is what every believer once was. Like, you may not have viewed yourself as hostile to God. You may have not viewed yourself as hating God, but you did. God says you were his enemy. You were a slave. But really, everyone is a slave. What Paul says, he says, either you're a slave to Jesus or you're a slave to sin and Satan. You're either a slave to unrighteousness or a slave to righteousness. And our lives give evidence of which one is which. So I always try to warn people, just saying with your mouth, that I'm not a slave to sin, I'm a slave to Christ. No, does your life, do you have any spiritual fruit to back that up? Are you growing in any obedience toward Jesus Christ whatsoever? Do you care at all about the commands of Christ? Is your faith truly in Christ alone? Your life will prove which one's true. Your life will prove which one you're a slave to. But I, I know I spent a lot of time talking about that, and I'm sure that was just, uh, you, a lot of you already knew that because I, I talk about it so much, um, about the depravity of man, right? Um, but I really want us to see that human beings aren't good people. Human beings aren't good people who just sometimes do bad things. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are depraved to the core. Every bit of us is corrupt. And we will stay that way under God's wrath for our wickedness until or unless God does a sovereign work of grace in us to change us internally to desire Him and to desire salvation from hell through Jesus. These are just the raw facts of Scripture. 
God must do a sovereign work of grace because we are so corrupted by sin. We are so much slaves. We are so much under the power of Satan. But moving on in, in verse 17, we go on to see the girl, right? this demon-possessed girl who is under the power of sin and Satan. She does what all, believe, all unbelievers do. She stands opposed to the gospel. Right? She stands opposed to the gospel, uh, opposed to godliness, and opposed to God's people. And the reason why I can say that is because she's following this group of missionaries around, screaming. Right? These are men, like men, men, servants of the Most High God, here to proclaim the way of salvation unto you. Right? She's screaming this stuff. I can't imagine how annoying that that would have been whenever these guys are trying to talk, these guys are trying to preach, they're trying to pray. And day in and day out, it says for days, she followed them around doing this. Right? And this possessed girl, by shouting, is either doing one of two things, as far as I can tell. One, she's, she might be mocking them, right? like saying these things so, sarcastically. Right? Yeah, these men are, are of the most high God, and they've come to proclaim. Like, just like making fun of them the whole time, um, trying to, to throw shame on them for the gospel that they're preaching. Or, and this is really interesting to think about, she's trying to discredit the gospel. Why, how, how would that work? How is she trying to discredit the gospel? Well, her being an avid worshiper, worshiper of Apollo, the people around her, she made a lot of money telling fortunes. They all knew that she's associated with the false gods of Greece. And then here she is saying this thing that's actually true. These men are servants of the Most High God. They really have come to tell us the way of salvation. And I think that, that she might be trying to intermingle the God of the Bible with her paganism. And therefore, anyone says, well, if what they're saying is true and she's in cahoots with them because they're not denying what she's saying is true, then... We could just listen to her, too, because it must be the same God, kind of. Right? And just kind of like intermingle paganism in with Christianity there. So I think she's either mocking them or trying to discredit the gospel. But basically, whatever it is that she's doing, right? That's a, a decent bit of conjecture. Whatever she's doing, she's trying to hinder that group of missionaries' gospel ministry. She's trying to hinder their obedience to Jesus Christ because she is opposed to God and his people. Right? And we can see the same kind of stuff going on today. Right, can we not, like un- unbelievers mock God's people? Like legit, watch Comedy Central for five minutes. I'm not telling you to do that, but I'm saying if you want to turn on like The Daily Show, is it, it's still on, it's just not Jon Stewart anymore. But yeah, turn that on and, uh, and, and watch as those who follow Jesus Christ are mocked for our stances on morality. You know, for, we will say, no, there is an absolute, utter biblical standard of what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable, and we get mocked for that. Um, God's people get mocked for believing in the inerrancy of Scripture. That Scripture is always right, and if I see something that I have a problem with in the Bible, I am the problem, and I need to submit to the Scriptures. God's Word is never wrong. We get mocked for that, that we would believe this book, that parts of it are, you know, five and 6,000 years old. You know, how, how stupid can we get for believing in this old book, right, that was just written by men and... You know, you've heard a lot of those garbage things that people say about the Bible. Um, we get mocked for evangelizing, right? That we would go out and tell people, hey, man, like God's wrath abides on you unless you repent and put your faith in Christ. How crazy does that sound, right? And we, we're mocked for that. We're mocked for the fact that we believe that God actually hears our prayers and answers them. He may answer them with no, but that he actually answers them. That we believe in the atonement of Jesus, that the death and resurrection of one man sets free God's people from the penalty for sin. And we'll live forever. The, the fact that we believe Jesus came back from the dead. We're mocked for all kinds of stuff like this. I could keep going because I used to be an atheist and I used to make fun of us for the exact same stuff. Um, but we see that we're mocked constantly. Um, and you can see it on the media. You can see it if you talk to 
five people on college campus. Um, another thing that we see today, um, not just mocking, but we see the unbelieving world around us trying to keep believers from God's call to evangelism. Right? We see, we see the unbelieving world trying to keep us from speaking biblical truths. Right? And we can see that via some legislation that gets passed. Um, I've heard of things in other countries, and usually America is a little bit behind the times, and it's just a matter of time before it hits us. That speaking out against homosexuality um, might be considered a hate crime within my lifetime. Not that we hate gay people. Um, you know, if Scripture says something sin, no matter what it is or how unpopular, we want to stand by that and speak those biblical truths and call people to repentance. Um, so we, we can see uh, bits of, of this kind of uh, gospel hindrance via legisl- legislation. We can see it through threats of social ostracism, right? That if you try to speak any biblical truth to me, I want nothing to do with you, that you could lose your job if you say anything about Christ in the workplace, right? And I'm not trying to be a fear monger, but these are things that like, we can actually read about. These are things that have actually happened. We see that people are being killed for evangelizing and speaking the truth of God's word in some places. We see it through the Middle East. We see it in Asia that people are dying. Another way that we see people trying to, the unbelieving world trying to uh, keep us from obedience to God is uh, unbelievers often, and every Christian, just for the record, is responsible to withstand temptation because we have the Holy Spirit living in us who actually enables us to say no. Anyone else ever been tempted by an unbeliever to sin? Right, to do something at work that's just kind of shady, it's just kind of illegal, whenever the Bible says obey the law. Or to like skirt around your taxes a little bit, whenever the Bible says give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Right, honor the king. Right, things like that all through scripture. Um, you know, come and do this with us, whatever it may be. Or, you know, like why don't you sleep with your girlfriend and you ought to really consider doing things like that. Um, we hear those kinds of things from unbelievers where we're tempted to sin. Um, which again is an attack on... on the fact that we're supposed to be living godly lives. But the reason why I wanted to give a few of those examples is I just, I just wanted us to see that I'm not just making this stuff up. Those are all attempts by the unbelieving world to hinder us from ministry and godliness, just like that girl did. Right? So this isn't something that was just happening in first century Rome. It's not as direct anymore. Right? But we do see those things happening. So we actually do have opposition from the unbelieving world around us. But really, though, if you, if you think about it, this girl, this possessed slave girl, and unbelievers today are just doing what comes naturally to them. Are they not? Right? Like Ephesians 2 says, like, we are by nature children of God's wrath. We are born sinners, right? It's talked about in the Psalms. Right? So unbelievers are just doing what comes naturally, and that is sinning. Right? Being slaves to sin and Satan, this is just what pours out. Right? So honestly, we ought not be surprised whenever unbelievers live in opposition to God and his gospel. We actually should be surprised whenever they do anything that isn't completely anti-gospel, right? But we, but we shouldn't be surprised whenever unbelievers live in opposition to God. Um, I'll give you a little quote from my buddy Dustin Cooley on this one. Um, he likes to put me in check with this sometimes whenever I get frustrated with unbelievers. Why would they do that? Why would they say that? Why are they so insolent towards God? Why? And uh, everyone knows the, the hymn Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a wretch being a sinner. Cooley always says, hey man, wretch is going to wretch, right? Like don't even worry about it. <laughs> Right? Like, sinners are going to sin. So, if they're slaves to sin and slaves to Satan, we ought not be surprised whenever we have to endure opposition. And we also ought to recognize that even though these attempts are to hinder us, and they affect us in our day-to-day lives, 
Those attempts to hinder us are actually coming from the unbeliever's hatred of God. We're a secondary target. Right? Romans 8, 7 says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. Hostile means it hates God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. So this is all unbelievers. Hostile to God first, and then if that pours over, it hits us. Right? Think about it this way. Because Satan hates God, Satan hates God's people. Right? So naturally, Satan's people hate God's people because they hate God as well. Now, I know what I've been doing here, and it might be making some of you a little bit uncomfortable because I know I, I sound like a fairly typical Baptist right now. I get that, right? At least for around here. Um, I know that I have painted a very polarizing picture right now, showing God's people on this hand and the unbelieving world around us on the other. I have intentionally made an us versus them like mentality here. I'm actually trying to show you that there very much is an us and them. Right? Don't ever believe this bull that says, you know, all people are the children of God. No. Actually, the Bible says there are children of wrath and children of God. Right? Everyone has a relationship with God. It's just, are you under his wrath or are you one of his children? Right? So don't buy into that. There is an us versus them. There is a church and there is the world. Those are like two incredibly common things talked about in the New Testament. All right? And I painted this picture. That was, I was trying to be polarizing, showing... Unbelievers are slaves to sin, love the works of Satan, hate God and his people. They're opposed to the gospel. But now what I want us to do is I want us to see what Paul, this is cool, what Paul as a representative of God's people. Right? That's what he is. He's an apostle, an apostolos, right? a sent messenger of Jesus, carrying the weight and, and, and uh, representing Jesus. What Paul does as a representative of God's people, what he does in response to the world. But in order to do that, I want to look at what Paul didn't do. All right, so this is going to be kind of fun. I want to look at what Paul didn't do because what he did not do are usually things that we want to do. So how did he respond to this girl? First thing, all of these are important, but this is big. Paul does not disengage the culture out of disgust. Right? I call this bomb shelter theology. Right? Where it's like, head for the hills, man. Like they're being godless. Right, like, and that's 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 something that we tend to be tempted to want to do is to get so upset with the world around us, so irritated with the negative responses that we that we get whenever we try to talk to people about Scripture that we would say, "You're insolent. You're a fool. I want nothing to do with you." Right, and and I, and I can see that on Facebook. God help me, I hate Facebook sometimes. It's a blessing and a curse. I can see people who are professing Christians sometimes say, I am so sick of getting disrespected for my faith in Jesus, even though Jesus Christ says, expect the world to hate you and even kill you maybe. Right, so they are not reading the Bible on that. But they'll say, I am so sick of being disrespected for my faith in Jesus that I'm done with those people and I'm done with their negativity and I'm not going to associate with them anymore. Right? How foolish is that? Does Paul... Did he run back to Lydia's house where she housed the church in Philippi and say, I'm only going to associate with Christians because they're so godless? That's not what Paul does. He actually turns around and engages this girl. He turns around and he rebukes this demon out of her. He engages the culture. He doesn't leave. And trust me, if anyone understood the holiness of God and would have been more offended by Gentiles who were pagan back then, it was Paul. Paul knew the scripture. Paul understood the holiness of God. He understood the goodness of God. If anyone was going to be angry, I guarantee you Paul would be angrier than the vast majority of us. But he does not disengage the culture out of disgust. Something else Paul doesn't do is he doesn't go home out of fear. 
Right? Just think about this. Right? And I was kind of laughing to myself because I like horror movies. Like, Paul has Linda Blair following him around in Philippi for a few days. That's an exorcist reference if any of you guys didn't get that. Whatever. Watch it. It's the scariest movie in the world still to this day. I don't care what anyone says. Maybe it's because I watched it when I was 10. Horrible. Just pukes that green stuff all over the priest. It's kind of funny now looking back at it because it's a priest. Anyway, um, but Paul does not go home out of fear. Even though there's a demon-possessed girl following him around, even though we see later, right, that Paul actually ends up going to prison, he and Silas go to jail for not a very long time because God frees him, but, but he goes to jail and is beaten within an inch of his life, put in like a torture device back then, because he sets this girl free from demonic oppression. I think Paul knew that that was going to come for what he was getting ready to do, right? So Paul's not afraid of the demon in this girl. Paul's not afraid of the fact that he is, there were so, there were so few people who even knew what the Old Testament was in Philippi. They couldn't even have a synagogue. There was like five or six women who met by the river who, who, who were Jews, Right, so like these people are so pagan, they're so godless, right? They're doing such immoral things. He's not afraid of them. Again, he doesn't go home. He doesn't go running back to Lydia's house. He does what he should. He turns around saying, I'm not afraid of what might happen to me because of this, even though I've kind of done the math and I might go to jail because you're making your slave owners a lot of money and they're going to be very mad if I cast this demon out and you can't make the money anymore. He says, I don't care. I'm casting this demon out. I'm going to tell you the gospel. Why am I not afraid? Because my God is sovereign and he has written the end from the beginning. What do I have to be afraid of? I know Paul knows that Jesus says, don't fear men who can kill the body, but fear God who after he has killed the body can throw you into hell. He says, I fear God. My God loves me. He's sovereign. I don't care what happens because of this. I'm going to engage this girl. And the third thing we see Paul does not do is Paul does not hate this girl. This is real. Paul doesn't hate this girl. I want you to think about this. Paul loves Jesus. Like, I hope that someday I can love Jesus as much as Paul does. I'm not trying to deify Paul, but Paul loves Jesus. He's jailed multiple times. He's beaten more times than he can remember. He's shipwrecked multiple times. He's thrown out of cities multiple times, all for the sake of the gospel because he loves Jesus. Now, think about this. Paul doesn't hate those who hate the Jesus that Paul loves so much. Just throwing this out there, just a little way to maybe make this real. I love my sister, right? Like, Brandon says it's creepy, right? <laughs> but, like, I love my sister a lot. Like, it, we're freakishly tight-knit. It's strange, I, I admit, um, which is kind of cool because we used to hate each other. <laughs> um, anyway, but, like, I love Amber. And if somebody were to come at me smack-talking my sister you know, talking, you know, she's such a jerk. She, I mean, she's done this and this and this, and I hate her, and I hope she dies, and I want nothing to do with her whatsoever, right? Like, I'm not much of a man, but, like, I'm kind of a man. And, like, I'm, like, I'm puffing my chest out, and I'm ready to fight this guy, right? Thank God that's never happened because I don't want to get beat up and down the street, right? But I would be, like, ready to rock and roll on this guy. That's my sister. I love her. How much more does Paul love Jesus? Because Jesus says, you must love me more than you love your family if you want to follow me. And I think Paul understood that. Paul loves Jesus more than anything in this world, anyone in this world. And this girl is mocking the gospel. And he doesn't hate her. I know that we have a tendency to want to hate those who hate Christ because we love Jesus. 
or because we're being self-righteous jerks. Either way, it's not okay. But what does he do? He shows love and pity towards this girl. He turns around and casts the demon out of this girl, and I believe he tells her the gospel afterwards. He shows pity and, t- and, and acts towards this girl in a loving way. That's the most loving thing he could have done, by the way, is to cast the demon out of her. But here's the question. Why does Paul respond the way he does? Why doesn't he hate? Why doesn't he go home out of fear? Why doesn't he disengage out of disgust? I think Paul recognizes a spiritual truth that is, this is like the, one, like this is one of the big, big things that you need to remember from this sermon. Paul recognizes a spiritual truth that is crucial for us. And that's in Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul talks about spiritual warfare, 6.12, he says, For we, Christians, are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. What does Paul understand that a lot of the times we don't whenever we want to hate or disengage? He knows this. This girl, in and of herself, is not Paul's enemy. Though she may be opposing me and God's gospel, she is not actually the enemy here. She's, flesh and blood is not our enemy. That's not who we're fighting. Paul knows Satan is the enemy. Sin and Satan is at, are, are both at work in her, and she is a slave to her master, and she is doing what is natural for her to do, and she needs set free. Notice Paul doesn't, he also isn't worried about her behavior so much here. He doesn't turn to her and say, hey, how about you shut up, right? He doesn't turn to her and say, hey, like someone needs to take this broad to the loony bin, right? He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't care so much about her behavior because he recognizes her behavior is just an outpouring of her spiritual problem because like Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So what we do is just really showing what's in here. Paul recognizes that. He said, this girl needs spiritually set free. She's not my enemy. Satan is my enemy. Sin is the enemy here. But not only that, I think Paul saw some of his former self in the girl, and this would be very good for a lot of us, especially if you're like me and you have a tendency to be a little bit judgmental towards unbelievers and get fed up with their junk. Keep this in mind, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve Him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted His people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. I think Paul saw some of himself in this girl. This girl is opposed to Christ. She's opposed to Christ's people. She's opposed to the gospel. And Paul said, I know that I was way more opposed than she was. I think that's why he doesn't hate her. He can see himself in her. And really, we should all be able to see our former selves and the unbelievers around us. Because the Bible says this, once you... Christian, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We were all slaves to sin and Satan until this Verses 4 and 5. But God is so rich in mercy. 
And He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Keep that in mind. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. And the only reason that I am no longer in that category anymore is because of the grace of God sovereignly given to me. Because I could not change myself. He must have changed me first. I think Paul knew those things. But the, the King James Version um, actually says, our, our version says, Paul became exasperated with this girl um, after she had been following the group for days. The, the, uh, the ESV says he was annoyed. Um, the NIV says troubled. And I think the King James actually gets it best. says that Paul was grieved. All those words are actually acceptable whenever you're translating it from Greek to English. But I think that that's, that's right. And, and by the way, any of the word that you, any words you would have chosen, it doesn't say that he was grieved towards her or he was annoyed towards her or he was exasperated towards her in and of herself. He says he's annoyed. He's grieved. I think he's grieved at sin at work in her. I, re I really genuinely think that's what it is. For, for certain, he, he was probably slightly annoyed that this girl had been yelling and following him around for days. But I think he's grieved at the work of Satan in this girl, and he pities her. I think he's grieved by her, by her state, and he wants her to be made free and know Christ. And he knows that the only solution is the, person and, is, is the person and work of Jesus. That's why he cast the demon out in Jesus' name. He knows this is the only hope that she has. Why is that? Because, because Jesus did this. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I'm... Christ overcame sin and Satan in his death and resurrection. That's why Paul knows only Christ is going to be the remedy for this girl's spiritual problem. That's something that we all need to bear in mind as we deal with the unbelievers. But I believe in this context, in the, in the context of the entire chapter, read it at home. We can disagree about it later if you disagree. But I believe from the context of this chapter that we're in, that the demon-possessed girl actually came to faith in Christ. I believe she was converted. I think Paul knew the only light could free her from her spiritual darkness. So after casting the demon out, that he spoke the word of Christ to her, and God opened her heart to believe in saving faith. I think Paul... just a phenomenal example to us here. But all of that to say this, and I'll be summing it up within the next few minutes, um, the infamous preacher lie. Um, we cannot allow ourselves to view people as our enemies. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against sin and Satan. We cannot view unbelievers as enemies. And not only unbelievers, right? Like, I'm not saying all of these groups, well, some of these groups are definitely all unbelievers, right? But we can't view people as our enemies. We can't view Republicans as our enemies. 
right? We can't view Democrats as our enemies. We can't view cops as our enemies. We can't view minorities as our enemies. We can't view immigrants as our enemies or atheists or Muslims or homosexuals or legalists. Those people are not the enemy. And I see a lot of Christians just get this completely wrong. And they think people are our enemy. I actually, and if this offends someone, I'm sorry, I, I'm not. <laughs> right? I actually saw, I, was, I watched a, just a sliver of the Republican National Convention. Um, and I'm not hating on Republicans here. I'm a registered Republican. Take that as you will. Um, but I saw this preacher. If you're listening to the podcast, I put that in finger quotations. I saw this preacher at this Trump rally, before he prayed, again in quotations, before he prayed, which is basically just a big idolatrous thing about Donald Trump, about how he's the Messiah, essentially. Um, I see this, this false preacher at this Trump, at this Trump rally at the, uh, at the RNC. He stood up and he gives this little tiny speech before he starts praying, and he screams into this microphone, the Democrats are our enemies. My jaw hit the floor. It's like apparently this cat's never read Ephesians 6.12 before in his life. And this is a problem if he's a preacher, right? He could not have been more wrong. But how often is that our attitude? The unbeliever is our enemy. I'm not saying all Democrats are unbelievers. I'm not making that blanket statement. Don't misunderstand me. Although I do disagree with you, you bunch of pagans. Anyway, um, but sin and Satan is the actual enemy. And people need to be made free by God. And they will only be made free by God. And they're only going to be made free if we boldly engage our culture with the Scriptures and with the truth of the Gospel and not hate the unbelievers and not disengage. And another side note, we can't allow, and this, this was big for me, we cannot allow ourselves to view other believers as our enemies either. Believers are not our enemies. Even when they hurt us or do something that we don't like, his families are going to do that, and we're a family. We have to keep in mind that these people are members of our family who have been changed by the grace of God. But according to Romans chapter 7, they're still dealing with remaining sin in them. So they might do something that hurts us. But that means that in that moment, they've, they've lost a battle against sin. So even in that moment, whenever a believer hurts us and we want to count them as our enemy and, and hate them maybe, we have to keep in mind it is still sin in them who remains the enemy. And other believers, just like unbelievers, need taken to the scriptures and they need prayed for and they need graciously talked to because that is how we fight the true enemy. Through the scriptures and through prayer. And through engaging people with those things. But in both cases, with believers and unbelievers, we have genuine hope for victory over sin because Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Christ has conquered. Christ sets people free. And we have to point people to that hope and freedom found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it, that it cuts us down, but it cuts us down so that the gospel can thread us back together. God, I pray that we would leave here with changed hearts, 
towards unbelievers. That we would leave here with changed hearts towards other believers. That we would not be afraid, that we would not live in hatred, but that we would see our former selves in them. And be grieved. And pity them. And then take the gospel to them. Give us patience, Father, just like you have with us. Give us the heart that your son has. Make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.